0: Let's just marvel for a minute at how good God is in just in what he is doing right now. That he would not only save us, but also guide us all of the way home. When We deserved eternal punishment forever. And his heart beat so tenderly with mercy for us that not only was he willing to save us from this destiny, but he was willing to restore us and gather us together and then lead us all the way home. He says, you deserve to be cut off from me forever. I want to take you into my kingdom. You deserve to be alone and exiled. I want to gather you into my people. You deserve to have no home, but I have prepared a home for you come with me and I will guide you together all the way there. This is a good God that we worship. And last week, I compared it to a lifeguard that saves us. I'm going to make that same comparison again, and I hope that it helps us so much. You know, if a lifeguard were to save a drowning person, well, he or she would be lauded as a hero. Even if he was 15 years old, we'd laud him as a hero. It would get written up in the newspaper books, and he would be a hero for doing that, for saving someone's life, undeserved. What God does for us is even more than this. He he does even more than a lifeguard does, not only saves us, but then doesn't let us go, but keeps us and guides us all the way home. We look to his word as his saved and redeemed people, asking God, would you guide us this morning? And here's where I pray that the word guides us this very morning. Uh, One of the best things really about being a Christian in this day and age right now, in the 21st century in the United States, is just how much teaching is available to us. If you wanted to, if you listen to podcasts, you could pull out your phone. I just tried to pull mine out, but it's right over there. You could pull out your phone, fire up the podcast app that you use and find... More Bible teaching uploaded today than you may have time to listen to for the rest of your life. And more will be updated next week as well. If you want to hear the Bible taught in person, you can just come right here. And there are multiple Sunday school classes you could choose from. Each of them led by a man or woman of God who will open the scriptures with you and tell you what it says. We gather right here freely, even in strange times. We just have so much teaching available to us. If you want to do it at the academic level, any of us here could go to, to many online websites, to seminary websites, get a seminary-level education in our spare time online without ever reading, without ever, leaving, ugh, without ever leaving our homes. So much is available to us, right? That's the good side of it, but there's a dark side to that. And the dark side is that if there is much Bible teaching available, there is, as a rule, much false teaching available as well. In fact, all too much of it is false. If you open up that podcast app I was mentioning earlier and go to the religion and spirituality section and look at the preachers there. Too many of them are false teachers. If you were to leave here and just stop at a random church on the way home and go in and listen to what was being taught, there's too great of a chance that what you would hear there would be false. And even the seminaries, if you were to find a seminary and say, hey, I could get an online degree from this school, there's too great of a chance that it could be false teaching there. So there's so much available to us, but so much of it is false as well. And so we have this difficult kind of thing before us if we want to take advantage of all the knowledge that's out there in the Bible, but we don't have time to evaluate all of it how do we make sure that what we're hearing is worth our time and pleasing to God that we would sit under these people's feet and learn from them? Well, one way is, of course, by evaluating the content of what has been taught, and we'll talk about that one next week, God willing. But this week we're going to talk about one that we often forget about, and that is looking at the life of the teacher. Does the life of the teacher reflect the gospel? We get a good grid for answering that this morning from the Word. And I pray that it helps us. And will give you one way whether you could tell whether you should be quick to trust a Bible teacher or slow to trust a particular Bible teacher. If you are just joining us, we are walking through the book of Titus together, which is full of many principles that can help strengthen a gathered church. We are doing this because I believe that 2021 will face even more challenges than we are facing right now. We don't know what they are, but we'll face them, and we want to be strengthened and ready for them. So we look today at the first real full paragraph in the body of the letter, uh, two verses in it particularly, verses 7 and 8 in the first chapter. And what we'll do is we'll read the whole paragraph, and we'll also read the next verse, which is not printed in your worship guide. And then we will stop, we'll outline that paragraph, and then we'll read today's verses together. So let's look at the book of Titus. If you're new to the Bible, it's toward the end. My Bible has 1,050 pages. It's on page 1,000. There are five books that start with T, and it's the last one of them. They're all together. This is the paragraph that it's in. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And the next verse, not printed for you today, says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. So that's the paragraph that today's verses rest in. Uh, Let me give you the structure of that so you can see the logic, understand what's going on around today's verses, and then we'll do a deep dive into today's verses. By now, you may be familiar with the story if you've been here a few times. Uh, Paul and Titus work together. Titus is Paul's apprentice. They do missionary work. They go travel all over the world. They had come to this island of Crete where their missionary work resulted in many churches that were new and were immature. They needed to be brought up to maturity. But you know what things are like? A newborn baby doesn't know a lot, and things are chaotic when the baby's in the house. Well, the churches were kind of like that and needed to be brought up to maturity. So Paul had to leave, but he left Titus there with the charge of bring these churches up to maturity, strengthen them up to maturity. And that is where we get the instruction in the first verse that we read here today, verse five. He says, that's why I left you there, right? So that you can put what remained into order. And the first main part of this is to appoint what he calls elders, which are sometimes called bishops or overseers, or we call them pastors in our tradition, to appoint many of them, several of them, in each of the towns, so in each of the churches. So the idea is that Titus needs to appoint these guys. That's his work, main work there, one of two main works that he's doing there. The rest of the paragraph tells us what kind of men he should be appointing into that office. And we get there one criteria and then three measurements we can use to see if he meets that criteria. The criteria is, is the man above reproach or blameless, which just means trustworthy. He's the kind of guy you don't expect to do wrong. We then get three measurements as to how we can figure out if this man is trustworthy. Uh, The first one we found in verse six last week, his family life. We look there. The second one we look at today in verses seven and eight, the picture of his character And then in verse nine, we find the third measurement, which is his teaching, which I hope to talk with you about next week. Then in verse 10, we learn part of why we must appoint these men into office. Why must we have pastors and elders? Why must they be good men who hold to the truth? The reason is that there are many false teachers about. Uh, They teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach, what is not true. We cannot afford for one of these men to take charge in the church and to teach within the church. So to keep us protected, we must have good faithful men shepherding and leading the church. That's the logic of the whole paragraph, right? We got to appoint some men. These are the kind of men we need to appoint, blameless men with good family lives of good character and with solid sound teaching because there is so much false teaching that is after our people. That's the idea. And that is why we get into verse 7, which has the repetition of the above reproach or blameless and then has the picture of character. Let's read it together. I'll read it more slowly. It's today's verses. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. The words of the Lord. So we have here then one of three measurements that we must apply to a man who aspires to the office of pastor, elder, overseer in a church. And that measurement is, what is the picture of his character? Does he look like this picture of high character that we see here? And through these words, what our Lord is doing is guarding us against worldly standards, because it is so tempting to appoint just charismatically gifted men with no respect to what sort of men they are in character. helping to guard us against worldly expectations, and on the other hand, to guard us against appointing the wrong men into office. You can see when there is so much false teaching abound, if even one, two, or three of these false teachers were put into office, the detrimental effect that would have to a local church. God guards us from that through these words. So before we get into the picture, we get two reasons, one of which I've already mentioned, uh, why we must appoint these blameless men into office. The first one comes in the first sentence here. It says, for an elder, and I'm sorry, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Paul shifts from the word elder to the word overseer seamlessly right? Appoint elders, they've got to be above reproach. Why? Because an overseer has to be above reproach. He just uses them synonymously like that. Other parts of the Bible throw in the word pastor like this too, or shepherd as well. He goes from one to the other, introducing a new word, overseer, that gives us a little bit of an understanding of what a pastor or elder does. He oversees things. He looks over things and makes sure that things are being done the way that God wants them to be done in the church, given special charge and responsibility there. And we get another image that helps us understand the nature of a pastor's role, and that is a steward. It says an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. A steward was a form of either employee or servant, depending on what class you were in. Uh, In the ancient world, uh, who was set over someone's house or someone's big kitchen that fed 100 people a day or someone's company or someone's money book sometimes. It is someone who is given great responsibility in a house by the owner of the house. So you've got the owner of the house, the master, and then you've got one or more stewards who are overseeing the things that go on in his house. He might put one, uh, one steward, one overseer over all of the kitchen, and this, this head chef has authority over all of the cooks in the kitchen, and his responsibility is to bring the food out. Or he might give another one authority over the checkbook, over the, over the money, uh, maybe one over the whole house. You might think of Joseph, who was a slave in Potiphar's house. But he rose up to be the greatest in the house, right? Potiphar trusted him with the entire house. So Joseph has great authority in the home. The only one above him is the master, but he has a master and he is still a slave. So there's this combination of great responsibility on one hand, but still being a slave and a servant to the master. So he can't run things the way that he wants them. He has to run things the way that the master wants them because the master will be coming around And the master wants to see that everything is quite to his liking. Now, if you were to be able to afford a steward in your own home, let's say you could afford to put your entire house, all of your money in your bank accounts, all of your computer passwords and all of that stuff, and your children in the care of somebody for six months while you went away on vacation. Now, this person has access to all of your accounts, both your bank accounts and your online accounts, they have access to everything in your home and they are taking care of your children for six months. This person must be a trustworthy person, right? You're putting so much responsibility on them. What damage they could do if this were a wicked person. And that's the logic that Paul uses here. He says an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He's gotta be a trustworthy man. Because he's given so much responsibility in the house and he has the ability to tear the house down if he wants to. Now we must appoint trustworthy men into the office. That's one reason. Because of the responsibility he's given in the house. Because he's God's steward, he has to be a trustworthy man. The other reason I already mentioned comes from verse 10 later on, which we'll dive more into later. That is that there are so many false teachers who are trying to break into the church. Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come like sheep, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves, right? So we got to protect against the wolves that are out to get us by installing trustworthy men. There you have two reasons we've got to have good, trustworthy men in office. Great responsibility stewarded to them, and they must protect us from the many false teachers and enemies who are around us those are the reasons now we gotta ask a question if we're protecting against false teaching why is the pastor's life outside of the pulpit so important I mean if if the goal here is to protect against false teaching wouldn't we just focus on the content of the teaching and leave it at that why does it matter what goes on outside of the pulpit there's a reason but we gotta wonder that and we also have to wonder when this paragraph talks about being blameless, trustworthy, and above reproach. In verse 9, part of being blameless and above reproach is teaching the true gospel. So, there's a connection here that a man of good character will teach the true gospel, and a man of poor character will not teach the true gospel. Do you see that assumption there in the paragraph? And we've got to ask, why would that be? What is Paul assuming here that we might forget about. Because we're certainly tempted to just evaluate a teacher by what he says, right? Is what he says in the Word, and we must do that. But Paul seems to be saying here that we've got to evaluate his life, too. And if his life does not line up with the Bible, then he's a false teacher. What's going on there? Here's what's going on. Paul is leaning on one of Jesus's teachings that comes from Matthew chapter 7. And let's turn there and read it. Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. This is the teaching that false teachers are recognized by their fruits. Again, Matthew 7, starting in verse 15. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. It's not by what they say. No, it's by their lifestyle. You will recognize them, he says, by their fruits. False prophets and false teachers are good at tricking people. If we just listen to their words, they're pretty pra- there's a good chance they could trick us. There's a good chance they could trick you because it's what they do for a living. So how can you be sure that you're not being tricked? You've got to look at their lifestyle. You've got to look at the fruit. Just as you cannot see the roots of these trees around us that are underground, the roots are hidden underground, you cannot see for yourself if the root system is healthy or if the root system is diseased. And if it's a fruit tree, the way that you find out if the root system is healthy is you wait until the season comes and you check the fruit. If the fruit is diseased and rotten, there is disease deeper in the tree. And it may be for a time that a tree with a poor root system can build a good trunk for a little bit before it decays and even bud some leaves and give the impression of new growth for a while until the decay catches up with it. But what a diseased tree cannot do is bear good fruit. And the scripture teaches often of, uh, along this analogy of fruit uh, by meaning good works, right? You can't do good works in righteousness regularly, time and time again. Right, without the right roots. So, just as you can't see the roots of the tree, you have to look at the fruit to see what is underground. You cannot see inside of my heart to know if my intentions are for your good or for ill. And you cannot see inside any teacher's heart to know if their intentions are for your good or for ill. For you don't know if they're coming in greedy, just doing this to try to get rich or to try to get influence or to try to get power. You don't know what their motives are. And most of all, you don't know if the gospel rests deep in their heart because you cannot see inside their heart. What you can see instead is the fruit. You can see the lifestyle that Jesus has put into this person. You can see the gospel that is in them come out of them in the way that they live. And this is how you recognize true teachers and false teachers, true prophets and false prophets. You will recognize them, Jesus says, by their fruit, by their lifestyle. You will know if they are true or not. This is because the gospel changes you. If you know and understand that you should be headed for eternal punishment because you deserve it not because God is mean but because of what you have done because you deserve it and you see how great and grand God is and how worthy he is of your worship you see that Jesus died to pay for your sin to offer you forgiveness And you turn from running away from him to run to him and receive the forgiveness that he holds freely in his hand for you. If you do that, he will not leave you alone for the rest of your life. What he will do is change you. He will put a new heart in you that longs to walk in his ways. He will put a new spirit, his very spirit within you to guide you in the ways of truth. And your life in season will look different. You won't be the same person anymore people who knew you will say, you're not the same person. You're not the person you used to be. I mean, you're the same guy. You're the same gal, but you're not the same at the same time. What's happening? God is changing you. And so when you've got someone who claims to be teaching the Bible and to be teaching the gospel and claims to be believing in the gospel, but the gospel has not changed their life, you have a false teacher. You do not have to listen to their teaching to know this. They are either a false teacher today or they will fall into falsehood tomorrow. You can recognize teachers by their fruits, not just by their words. This is why, back back to Titus, I hope you kept your thumb or a bulletin in Titus, we'll go back there. This is why in the last verse of chapter 1, Paul is talking about these teachers and he says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Right same principle their lifestyle denies that they know God That is why it's so so important that we evaluate the character of a pastor before we put him into office so important that pastors keep our character above reproach and live godly and holy lives before the church The proverbs say the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence From that, I take that if I want my words to give life to you, I have to live righteously seven days a week. It is not enough for me to come up here and give you the best rhetoric that I have. It's not enough for me to come up here and give you my best voice and my best study into the scriptures. No, I have to live righteously every day of the week. I have to repent of my sin over and over again, or even my own words will not give you life. So what we have here then is you could say the fruit of a true teacher, right? If the spirit gives fruits like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, we look at that tree of a true teacher. We see that there's good fruit on that tree. What are those fruits? What sort of things are produced in the life of a true gospel teacher? Well, let's look at it together. I'll read the whole list. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. This is the sort of fruit that is on the tree of a righteous teacher. First, he is not arrogant. An arrogant person believes that he is better than others and even holds himself better than God. And you can see this in the way that he lives his life. Because he believes he knows better than God, the word of God will correct him and he will dismiss it. Or at times he will say, well, we are so beyond that now, right? I mean, we used to think that sex had to be restricted to husband and wife, but humanity's beyond that now, right? We've grown out of teachings like that. This is the sort of arrogance that we can apply to the Bible sometimes, thinking that we know better than he knows. You can see it come out in the way he interacts with God, the way he receives correction when he is in sin. You also see it come out in the way that he treats other people. He treats them in a way that degrades them naturally. And he does this because he thinks he is better than other people. But a man who teaches the truths of God must be in touch with how sinful he is, how he is the greatest of all sinners. He cannot look down on others, but should see the most wretched and miserable sinner and pull them out with mercy and say, friend, come with me. I have found mercy and you can find it too. This is the sort of humility that a man of God must act with. He must not Be arrogant. Arrogance is the mark of a wolf who, if given oversight over the flock, will prey on the flock. Secondly, he must not be quick-tempered. That one is rather self-explanatory. He doesn't get angry easily. You've seen that. You know what it looks like, and I don't have to tell you what it looks like. So I'll tell you this instead. Uh, Those of you who drive cars, which is everybody here, and those of you that love cars especially, Imagine if someone were to give you your dream car. And I don't mean your dream car that you hope one day to afford. I mean a car that you don't ever think you will be able to afford. If someone gave it to you, you would just laugh and say, what am I doing driving this thing? This is amazing. You get the best car. Just imagine, but some of you have a particular car figured out, you know, just what it is. Go ahead and imagine it. They give it to you. They give you the keys. And they say, there's just one thing the steering can go out at any time and so you never know when it's going to turn you hard right or hard left I mean most of the time it just goes straight on but every once in a while you know you'll be driving down the road and boom hard right no control hard left no control is that a car that you can trust your own safety to and the safety of your family to would you take them for a ride in that great car but the steering could go out in any moment it's not safe because at any moment, it could throw you into oncoming traffic. At any moment, you could go be going 80 miles an hour on the freeway and boom, right into a wall because you never know when that steering is going to go out. It's got to be reliable, right? In the same way, a pastor who is quick to anger, you never know when those wheels are going to turn sharply and bam, you never know when it's going to happen. He might make it for a year, two years, three years, and just go straight and narrow down the road and not hurt anybody. But you never know when he might blow up. A pastor cannot be quick to anger. The third thing he must be is he must not be a drunkard. And that one's pretty self-explanatory too, although some of us do try to misinterpret it sometime, I think. It simply means that he doesn't get drunk. Uh, It's that simple. It is a little more complicated today because then if someone wanted to escape from their sorrows through intoxication they would do it primarily through alcohol Uh, today you have a whole litany of drugs that you can go to and so we have to apply the same principle to that Uh, and thus we should say a pastor cannot be one who gets drunk or gets high or abuses drugs in any way as any form of escape from his sorrows or fun or recreation or any other reason that we might do that This does not mean that alcohol is never allowed to touch his lips. It just means he is not allowed to get drunk. And the other chemicals, it appears that even milligrams of them will intoxicate a man, so he must avoid them entirely. Proverbs 31 gives some of the reason why. This is not the virtuous wife part, but the other part of Proverbs 31. A king's mother is pleading with him, Do not get drunk with wine, my son. He's going to be king one day. And her reasoning is... You have so much responsibility in the kingdom. People are counting on you. You have to stand up for the poor and oppressed against the wicked. You have to make good decrees, my son. Leave wine to the other people. You don't have time for that, right? That's her logic. You have so much responsibility, she tells her son, that you can't get drunk. You'll pervert justice if you get drunk. And that is one reason why a pastor cannot get drunk. There is so much responsibility stewarded to him. Not only this, but he never knows when he's going to be called upon to visit someone on their deathbed in the hospital at the last instant. He never knows when he's going to be called upon to make a decision that will make mean so much for the church. I remember myself waking up on what I hoped was going to be a random Monday morning and reading that the CDC said that we needed to suspend all gatherings of 50 or more people for eight weeks, and I had to decide right then at like seven o'clock in the morning, okay, who are we gonna call? What are we going to do about that? When you've got that kind of responsibility thrust upon you, you can't afford to be waking up with a hangover. You can't afford to be waking up drunk from the night before. No, a pastor cannot be a drunkard. He cannot be a man who gets drunk. And another reason why drunkenness is not fit for any Christian is that we have a refuge from our troubles. The main reason people get drunk, aside from just being silly and having fun, is to escape their sorrows. But we don't need to escape our sorrows we have a rock we can cling to in our sorrows who will bring us so much more happiness than a momentary escape will bring us we have no need for drunkenness we have someone so much better by our side that helps us to look our sorrows right in the eye we walk through the valley of the shadow of death but we fear no evil for he is with us and so we don't sense this need for a mental escape from our troubles The fourth thing a pastor must not be is violent. He must not be violent. Now, on one hand, this is obvious, right? You're not going to go in and get pastoral counseling from someone who might hit you. But it's also true, and it's also true, I should say, that the fruits that the Spirit bear within a man who trusts in Jesus include gentleness and self-control. So, if a man exhibits violence toward others, if he doesn't have the control to keep his anger in and not hurt other people who oppose him, well, he's not going to be fit to pastor because the Spirit is not bearing the fruit of gentleness or self-control in him. A pastor must not be violent. And the last thing he must not be is greedy for gain. And there's an important biblical reason why he cannot be greedy for gain. It goes back to that image I gave you earlier of a steward. Now, remember, a steward has a master. A steward is a servant who reports to someone and calls him Lord or Sir. Well, Jesus says that you cannot serve two masters. If you serve two masters, you'll either love one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You just can't do it. You can't hold on to two masters at once. And then he says what he means. He says you cannot serve both God and money. A man who is greedy for gain, he's got at best two masters and you can't do it because the steward has to report to only one master, to only Jesus. A man greedy for gain either has money as his only master or is trying to serve two masters and it will not work. Before we go into the positive characteristics, let me just give you one, uh, one picture that might help us understand why character is so important for these men. Let's imagine that you needed to go in for a surgery that was a high-risk surgery, uh, but also high reward. It could save your life or you could die on the operating table, you know, the starkest of days before you. And you've got to choose between two surgeons who could perform the surgery for you. One of them is a very good person, very virtuous person, who is fresh out of medical school with no experience and graduated medical school just barely. Like, did okay, but not great. No experience. That's one choice. The other choice is the best surgeon in the field, but he committed adultery the night before the surgery. Who are you going to trust to cut your body open, to perform the surgery, and preserve your life? Well, it may be a toss-up, or you may be thinking to yourself, I think I would just take the good surgeon. I think the good surgeon maybe would just do a better job. Like you you might have a tough time deciding there, or maybe you just go right for the surgeon. I don't know. Compare that to another choice maybe you would have to make one day. Let's imagine that next Sunday comes around, I'm unable to be here, and it falls to you to ask someone to preach the sermon. You get to choose who is going to preach next Sunday's sermon. And again, you have two choices. One person who is a A good man who loves Jesus will deliver the true gospel faithfully from the scriptures and just really isn't the best public speaker in the world. I mean, he'll get by, but he's not that great. But he'll be faithful, and he's a good man. Or the greatest public speaker you have ever heard who will make you feel things, will just make you feel like you are on fire, but that man committed adultery the night before. Who would you choose? I hope that's a clear cut one for you, right? The man who committed adultery last night, let's not put him in the pulpit. Now, why was that more clear cut than the first decision? Why, why would we be quicker to trust a surgeon to work with their hands and operate on our body if they're maybe not that great of a person, but we would not trust someone to preach the word of God to us if there is great sin in their lives? Well, the reason is that surgery is natural work done with the hands and the mind. And it may be uncomfortable for you to consider someone like that operating on you. You may have some moral difficulty with that, but when it comes to just the question of are they gonna do a good job or not, you could still probably count on them to do a good job with their mind, with their hands, and to preserve your life there. But preaching is not natural work. It is not ultimately done with the skills of the person holding the microphone. It is supernatural work. Rhetoric, a loud voice, Even reading great words and understanding them are not enough. A preacher relies every week on the Spirit of God to move into hearts and to perform miracles as he is preaching. If he has committed grievous sin the night before, grieved the Spirit of God, we cannot expect that he would get in the pulpit and we would see the Spirit do his work. So part of the reason why character is so important is that this is supernatural work that these men engage in. It is not natural work done with the hands. That doesn't make them better people. That doesn't even make it a better profession. But it does mean that we have to have men of good character preaching to us. Let's look at the other characters, the positive ones. What are some things he must be? We've looked at what he must not be. What must he be? First, he must be hospitable. That simply means that he welcomes outsiders inside, and it can happen in many different places. He welcomes people who are outside his home and family into his home. He, when he's talking with new people in the lobby or on the field, you can sense that his spirit is to pull the outsider in, not to take the outsider, and push them farther out. He must be hospitable. He must be a lover of good, and that means moral good. He loves when good things happen, and he loves when good people do good things. Loves good people, loves good deeds. A lover of good. He sees perhaps his wife raising her children in, in truth and in wonder before God, and he delights in that because he loves good. He loves to see good work done in his house. He sees a choir get together and work and rehearse and sing praises to God, and he's delighted because he is a lover of good. He sees what good could be done tomorrow in the church, and he's delighted to chase after it because he is a lover of good. And this is important for those of us who are in leadership. It gives us some wisdom because leaders tend to be the kind of people who see what is wrong with right now, and chase for a better thing tomorrow, right? We see what could be tomorrow, what is not okay with the status quo, and we try to fix it. That's what drives people in leadership a lot of times. And that's not a bad quality, that's a good quality. We're chasing after the good of the future. But if you spend all of your energy focused on what is wrong right now and what is wrong yesterday and what was wrong the day before yesterday and this other thing is wrong too and we don't do anything right around right. If a pastor focuses on this all of the time and doesn't love the good that is around him, he won't have the trust of the people to lead them into a better tomorrow. He must love good that is here right now when he sees it, delight in it, And he must love good that he sees tomorrow. And I can testify to this. I can testify to conversations when I've had and how much of a motivator it is to people when they see me not just say good job and mean it, but when they see me excited at what they are doing, like just ecstatic that they're doing this good work and delighted in what they're doing, that will motivate people. That's because being a lover of good is something that God works through in leadership. A pastor must be a lover of good. He must be self-controlled, and I'll combine that with the very last one, which is disciplined. Those are both very similar words. Sometimes these lists have some overlap in them. Why must a pastor be self-controlled? This is very important. Let me point you to chapter 2, where Titus is told what to teach. What sort of lifestyle is he supposed to teach? And you see in verse 2 of chapter 2, he has to teach the older men to be self-controlled, right? Right? And then you see in verse 5, he has to teach the older women to teach the younger women to be self-controlled. And then in verse 6, you see likewise, he has to urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And when Titus leaves, it's the elders that he appoints that will be doing this. So much of a pastor's work is to urge people to have self-control and teach others to have self-control. And we see this done in so many ways right now. Like right now, I'm having to ask all of you to gather on a field in your cars. Very few of you want to do this, right? Why would we do it? Self-control. I just have to ask you to have self-control, right? Many of us don't want to wear masks. And what do I have to say? I just, Self-control, wear a mask even though we don't want to. Uh, Many of us are upset at the people who don't want to wear masks, and I have to say, self-control, don't be angry at the guy that doesn't want to wear a mask. Just over and over I'm having to say, self-control, self-control, we've got to have self-control, self-control. It's a huge part of a pastor's job just to call others to self-control. Now, back to the criteria for the pastor. Can you see how he can't do that if he doesn't have self-control? He must be self-controlled himself and must model it for others or he cannot call other people to self-control. There's another word disciplined as well that's used toward the end, and it also means self-control, but it's got a little bit more of a focus on his bodily cravings, like wanting to eat too much food, wanting to commit immorality, maybe a craving for drugs or something like that, controlling his bodily cravings as well. And lastly, I'll combine the remaining two upright and holy. They essentially mean the same thing. He must live in a way that is set apart before God, because he is teaching people how to live holy lives. He cannot do this if he does not live a holy life himself. So this is the picture that we must see in anyone who aspires to the office of pastor. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. That is a portrait of a blameless man. So let me answer the question that I asked in the beginning. How can we evaluate all of this teaching that is available to us and make the best of all that teaching on the internet, all the Sunday school classes we have, the many sermons that I hope to preach to you over the course of my life and time here, how do we make the best of that without letting false teachers into our lives? Well, I think the answer this text gives us is that we should be quicker to trust a teacher whose character we know, whose life we see. We know he's living rightly before God. And we should be slower to trust teachers whose lives we cannot see. This is one of the big pitfalls, one of the big linchpins in our celebrity culture. We learn so much from men and women whose lives we don't get to see. And one thing this reminds us is that we were not made to be formed by our digital communities. You were not made to be formed by your phone or by Facebook or by YouTube, or by strangers on the internet. You should avail yourself of as much good teaching as you have time to listen to from those mediums. But ultimately, you are meant to be formed by your local church where you have a Sunday school teacher whose life you see day in and day out. And you can have confidence and say, I know this man, this woman is walking with God. So I can be quicker to trust their words and not fear that they're tricking me into believing something that is false. I see this pastor live and I see him love his family. We're meant to live in the local church like this and have confidence in our teachers. This is how we save ourselves the heartache of trusting in a celebrity for years or decades and then seeing them fall and finding that they weren't the kind of, person that we thought they were. How do we spare ourselves of that? Trust the most the teachers whose lives that you can see the most. Then you can be most confident that you're not being led astray by a wolf or by a false teacher. God is good. He gives good words and good guidance. As we move into prayer now, let's thank him for this. Let's praise him for this. He has once again given us guidance from his word, and he is worthy to be praised. Let's pray.